You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I am most productive when everyone else is asleep at night. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. My most productive time of the day sadly varies because of my ADD. I cannot pick a particular time and say, that's it. It just, (laughs) it it happens. (laughs) And when it does, I get really frustrated if people get me out of that moment because it takes hours to get into it. (laughs) So, yeah. Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. And I used to be able to say I was most productive at night because I am a night owl, but the older I get, the more that varies. And I also don't feel like there is a particular time that works best. You just let the spirit lead. (laughs) Just tired all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Constant exhaustion and just snippets of uh, bursts of energy. (laughs) So... Why? Why, you ask? Are we talking about time? <laughs> yes, tell us. I was asking. I was asking it very Thank hard in my head. Thank you for Zach anticipating that. Why? So why, Kendra? Good. Answer why. why. Why are we talking about, about time? Why? Why ever? Why ever? Well, let me tell you. I have an answer for you. Oh, thank God. <laughs> um. So... Uh, we we thought that today we would talk about shapes of time. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, shapes of time. So, uh, um, just to kind of start out. So, whenever I teach students, typically it's in like a world religions or an intro to religion class this semester. It was um, a world religions class, but when I'm having a conversation um, in a classroom with students about different, uh, you know, religious traditions and how, like, what are some of the things that we can compare safely without sort of essentializing religious traditions, um, one fun conversation I like to start with somewhere near the beginning of the semester is to talk about shapes of time. And what I mean by that um, uh, is, you know, cyclical versus linear conceptions of time, Um, or, you know, some might argue also like spiral shapes of time. And so the way this looks when I bring it up to my students is I I typically um, use for my examples, Hinduism um, or Buddhism and um, Christianity. And I draw up on the board uh, just, you know, a simple, like, circle and a simple, uh, like, horizontal line um, as just, like, two examples of shapes, the circle and this horizontal line. And I, I talk about how, uh, you know, time is something that we sort of take take for granted as it's just sort of it permeates everything, but we don't we're not always like thinking about how our understanding of time, you know, like really impacts us necessarily, or uh, maybe I shouldn't speak for y'all, but I don't always <laughs> think about how time itself is like impacting my day to day, except when I'm trying very hard to get something done and time is just slipping away. That is yep. the moment where I become very <laughs> conscious of time. But on a grand scale, um, it's something that's sort of taken as just the way things are and the way that we think about time is, um, I think we I kind of, it's easy to sort of assume that our sort of grand notions of time and how time unfolds, that, that there's nothing too complicated or like interesting about that necessarily. And, <clears throat> and so when I draw up this like circle and line on the board for my students, um, one of the, the conversations that I, I'm trying to get started is how uh, we across like religious and cultural traditions, we actually have very different understandings of 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 time. And uh, by time, I'm I'm not I'm not 
talking um, in this moment necessarily about like scientific, like theory of relativity, you know, kind of technical explanations of like space time. Um, but like, cultural and, and social understandings of like what will happen, what has happened, what is happening and what will happen to us socially and culturally. And and so um, the circle on the board then is what I offer as like a Hindu or Buddhist example of cycles of time with regards to reincarnation and how, you know, the human uh, soul, if we're talking about Hinduism, but not not really a soul if we're talking about Buddhism, but the, the person and the person's existence uh, moves through a cycle of time that is stuck in uh, this re- cycle of reincarnation, of, of birth, uh, life, death, rebirth, and that this is, um, this circle is, um, is known as samsara, if you're, um, you know, using Hindu um, terminology and conceptions of time. And samsara is a cycle that you want to get out of. So samsara is like the way things are um, from a Hindu or Buddhist perspective in terms of thinking about time and how we exist in time. But samsara is not desirable. Um, There are ways that you can um, build up better karma and be reincarnated in a way that is better or worse contingent upon like what kind of karma you built in your current life. Um, but ultimately, the goal in, in that version of cyclical time is to get out of the cycle, to be released from this cycle. Um, but the cycle can go on and on and on, and you can have, uh, you know, hundreds hundreds of reincarnations, and there's no, like, you, you have to, there are certain practices and, and things you have to do in order to be released from this cycle. And, and so, you know, one of the, we can put this in um, the show notes, but there's um, a, an article that um, has like some helpful kind of visuals, but I want to just kind of talk about like the way that this cycle of time for Buddhism is uh, represented. Um, it's the Buddhist will of life. And you, there are a lot of different, I mean, if you just Google that, like you'll find all kinds of um, really colorful, vibrant images that come up of this wheel of life. Um, but the wheel of life, you can see like there are different realms in the Buddhist wheel of life. And those are sort of the possibilities for um, how you reincarnate into the cycle of samsara. And so you can see like, why now hopefully like there's this distinction between like a cycle versus um linear time because there's not uh there's not like one specific end goal that is clear to you from the perspective of a, your current life if you are, have this cyclical notion of time i mean yes like ultimate release from it you could see that as an end goal but like the reincarnation cycle um, it, it means that you you will again experience what you have already experienced. You will again experience birth, which is something that you already have experienced in the past. You will again experience, um, you know, life insofar as you have experienced it. Um, and, you know, death will happen again and again and again. It's not a single kind of destination point until you have achieved the right tools and practices to get out of that cycle. And, and so you can kind of think about like how that might um, inform a person to like navigate through life itself. Um, the other, so the, like the linear line on the board I use as Christianity, but I think it also applies pretty well to like the Abrahamic traditions um, in general of Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But I use Christianity in particular because there's so much that has been written about Christian, um, like apocalyptic, um, you know, eschatology, which is mm-hmm. a fancy word meaning like the study of end things <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, like end of time. And, and another, uh, there are some images that we can also um, share, I think, in the show notes of um, this, uh, version of Christian eschatology called Christian dispensationalism. Um, 
there are, are different ways to kind of label this too. Like you may have heard Christian premillennial dispensationalism, uh, postmillennial dispensationalism. However you slice it, it is a mouthful of a, <laughs> of a thing to say, <laughs> dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, but there are images um, that we can share that kind of show that in this version of Christian eschatology, it's not how everyone sees the end of time, but this version of Christian eschatology that's um, popular in especially some circles of like um, Christian, um, like fundamentalism um, types of theology or, you know, like some evangelical um, theologies, um, there are seven dispensations of time and that time moves in a linear fashion and a dispensation is just like a stage of time i think that's the way i would describe it more simply because dispensation is also kind of a buzzy word um in this context but there are um you know like stages of time that kind of unfold in this linear fashion. But the point is that we're not moving in a cycle with this conception of time. We're moving towards an end point that is the apocalyptic end of time. And after the end of time, eternity unfolds forever and ever. And it just kind of goes on in this linear, like one one way uh, there's a, a path, a direction, and we move in that direction, and it's kind of inevitable. Like, you can't really stop it from unfolding. It's going to happen. And, um, you know, the some of these dispensations for Christian dispensationalism, you have, like, the age of innocence, and that's, like, you know, Adam and Eve. Uh, you have, you go up through, like, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, but the... <laughs> I mean, I could like list all of those, but I'm uh, side note, <laughs> trying to kind of move quickly. I'm timing myself this time so that I'm not going like way over 15 minutes. <laughs> so it's like innocence, no innocence. God's here. God's there. Now it's Israel. Now it's now it's Jesus. Now it's yeah. 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 It's also no, inherently I, kind of uh, anti-Semitic um, yeah, in yeah. that dispensationalism leaves Jews behind. But go right, on. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, yeah, you have, like, innocence, stage one, stage two, conscience, stage three, human government, stage four, promise, stage five, law, stage six, grace, stage seven, kingdom age. And there are, you know, specific things that happen in each of those stages that kind of map on to biblical stories, um, the stages that map on to, like, the time of Moses and, um, you know, just, like, the time of Abraham, um, in all of these stages, as they unfold, it's like sort of this like progression of like God's plan for time. And the way that that ends is with this uh, seventh dispensation, the kingdom age, where Jesus returns and reigns on earth um, for a thousand years and, you know, brings peace. And, you know, after that time is kind of over, there's like the final judgment, the white throne judgment, and then uh, time ends and eternity begins. And that that's kind of the the ending of this like premillennial dispensationalist Christian theology. Again, sorry for the long buzzy <laughs> terminology. <laughs> but the point is that this version of time is 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 different like it's it it has that linear shape to it and um one of the things that i think is kind of interesting about this understanding of time um and it, it it's there's this like piece of inevitability um mm. and it's not the only version of like like this is i think kind of a, a common kind of trope in like apocalyptic literature and thought is like the apocalypse is coming eventually, like it's inevitable. And that means that you can't fight it. And in some ways, believing in the inevitability of the apocalyptic moment of end of time can make some people sort of lean into that and welcome that end of time moment if it means that the their sort of conception of time uh, will actually like ultimately benefit them. So, for example, in like this Christian dispensationalist um, premillennialism version of the end of time, um, Christians uh, who hold this believe that they'll be gone. They'll be sort of taken away by God out of uh, 
out of the earth, out of time, so that they don't have to experience the the violence and trauma of the apocalypse itself, and that they will be, you know, held close, near and dear and safe um, with God and p- protected from the end of times. And so what this means is you have um, Christians who hold to this kind of eschatology are, I think, more likely to say things like, well, let's just like let it all burn because we're not going to be here anyway. Like only the unsaved will be sort of judged and condemned, but, um, you know, Christians will be safe. So any violence that happens, ultimately, it's it's not going to affect us in the end in this kind of eternal way. And and so I think the kind of extreme response uh, through that kind of uh, lens of time is uh, it, it can, doesn't always have to, but it can lend itself to uh, apathy and even like a, a, a condoning of, um, you know, destruction and, and violence. And this is uh, I mean, sort of using that as an example because there is actually an article that was um, published very recently in the Atlantic about um, this language, like cautioning against the language of um, a new civil war that's like impending in the United States, and mm-hmm. um, that the whole article is is pretty interesting. But there's this line that um, caught my eye, um, and it it says, you know, uh, several paragraphs down. And I'll just kind of like read the the couple of sentences for for y'all that says, quote, there is a very deep strain of apocalyptic fantasy in fundamentalist Christianity. Armageddon may be horrible, but it is not to be feared because it will be the harbinger of eternal bliss for the elect and eternal damnation for their foes. On what used to be referred to as the far right, but perhaps should now simply be called the armed wing of the Republican Party, the imminence of civil war is a given, end quote. Hmm. And and that caught my eye because it's really talking about a shape of time. And, you know, like the question that kind of arises from that for me is like, what what are practical implications in our behavior when we think about like what our own shapes of time are do we have notions that lead us to an inevitable end is it something that we experience over and over again and like is that just sort of philosophy or theological pondering or does that kind of impact us on this like deep on the ground level and um and so that that was uh that was kind of where where my mind was going when I think about this uh, the shape of time. Mm. So that's kind of what I, what I have to start us here. No, well, so as while you were talking about it, um, especially the, the last part and I mean, you all know I don't have the theological background that you guys do. So a lot of times the words that are used, I'm kind of like, what are you talking about? But it made me just all of a sudden just reminded me of the Left Behind series. Yes. That was written. The book series, right? And so... That is a great example, Ian, that you have yeah. just given us and reminded us that is Christian premillennial dispensationalism. Yeah, so now That's I'm a good translation, that. a.k.a. Left Behind series. Right. Well, and I find it... Fascinating. So what's interesting is that I actually got into reading this series in like 2000. It was when I was in the Peace Corps. Hmm. Um, And so when I was in the Peace Corps in Jamaica and the main office in Kingston, I always had a library that we could go and just get books from and blah, 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 and take with us back to our home and everything. And, um, And so... I think that was the time I started getting into this series because I saw it and I was kind of like, Oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And so I started reading it. Um, and I, you know, was not, uh, very strong in my faith. I want to take that back. That's actually when I first started a Bible study, but it was, it was a different time in my life. Right. So I was 23 years old, 22, 23, um, different time in my life, different things going on. Um, and it, I, now that I looked it up and just looked up left behind again to remind myself some of it. And I'll be honest, I did not finish the series because I found it to be, and this is just my opinion. Some of the writing, you know, again, I was not 
familiar with uh, the language, the terminology that was being used and the description that you just provided, Kendra, but there were parts of the books I found as I was going further and further in the series that I would skip whole sections because it felt like it was reading the same thing I read in the book before, right? Um, Like these long sermons from a character or whatever. Um, And so, but I'm curious, how would I approach the series now at this point in my life and at this point in my spiritual journey? Right. And starting to have a better understanding of time and just religion in general and what the underlying me. I mean, I get what the meaning was, but like hmm. talk about dispos, dispos, what is the word again? Dispos- Dispensationalism. There yeah, you go. That you one. Can, you can approach that book series straight into the recycling bin if you'd like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have them anymore. I th- Like I That's ended up good. buying several of them and got rid of them. That's good. Um, yes. Pre-trib, pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalism is what that is. Okay. Essentially, the millennial in the millennial, in the pre-millennial, post-millennial, mid-millennial, that has to do with, in Revelation, talks about how there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ um, before then Satan is allowed to return, cause havoc, and then the final judgment. And so then the thought is, the question is, when does that happen? So the pre-millennial is that that hasn't happened yet and okay. that there will be this great time and then there'll be blah, blah, blah. Then there's post-millennial that's like, hey, no, that's where we are right now, that this this kingdom age is is the millennial reign of Christ, that the, uh, um, the age of the church, or maybe that we're almost there. Um, and then the trib part of that is the, not the trip. Yeah, the is the tri- great tribulation, trib, as in tribulation, right? The yeah. seven-year tribulation that is foretold in in uh, Daniel and in Revelation. And at what point would the people of God be raptured out of it so that only the unrighteous should suffer? There's some interpretations that oh, before the tribulation, all the elect will be taken out, and that's what left behind is. There's some thought that it's midway through, taken from. Um, a couple of phrases from Daniel, and then there's some that everyone will have to live through the whole thing only until the end will then there be judgment on it all. And I mean, I was steeped in this stuff. My seventh grade Bible teacher had a timeline on the wall of the end times with like how many months in between events would happen. You know, the the two witnesses would show up here, one of them would die, and then they'd raise, and then there'd be, you know, the Antichrist would rise, and he would have a mortal wound, and then he'd be healed, and then he'd be like all along the way. Um, we knew what the mark of the beast was going to be and when it was going to happen. It was actually supposed to start happening on Y2K, but then apparently um, enough people prayed and God delayed God's hand. <clears throat> or so that's what they told me when it didn't happen. Um, but it's, it's ironic to me that this group of people has latched onto second temple apocalyptic literature, which is this period of time. It's like a 300 year period during the second temple of Jerusalem, where this genre starts to arise. Um, they've taken that and applied it directly to this sort of straight line timeline that you're talking about, Kendra, that... You know, this thing hasn't happened yet, but here are the signs to know when it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. And it goes from A to B to C to D onward until the end. It's a straight line. When that is the exact opposite of the way that Second Temple apocalyptic literature is written and meant to be read. Um, If you look at Daniel and parts of uh, Jesus's little apocalypse on the, on the mountain and, and the book of Revelation and, you know, all of the ones that didn't make it into the, the Hebrew and Christian canons, they're all using coded language for things that are happening in the moment. Now, there's a great, great part in Daniel in which they're talking about um, kings of the north and kings of the south and marriages that between them and wars between them. And it's very clearly talking about the battles between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And like, historically, we know this, this is lining up exactly what it is until the uh, desolation of uh, the abomination of desolation. And then there's this great war. And then God comes down with his angels and saves the day, which we know didn't happen, <laughs> at least not in any kind of final sort of a way. Um, so then what do you do with that? 
Well, that's how all of them are written. They're all written with this great symbolism of things, of awful apocalyptic sort of images. And in the end, God wins. And I say apocalyptic, that word means to reveal, to pull back the curtain. And so what that whole genre is doing is it says, hey, um, you see these things happening in real life, but I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you the spiritual realities behind them. So you think Rome is this uh, unstoppable force, but hey, pull back the curtain and it's actually just this ugly dragon and the ugly dragon is going to be thrown into the pit of fire. So these books were meant to be read by people who are currently suffering so that they can put themselves in the story and then see that in the end, God rescues them. So in a way, Second Temple Apocalyptic literature is like a green screen in which generation upon generation upon generation can stand in front of it and put themselves in the story. So the, the beast uh, from Revelation is originally Nero, and then, you know, it might be uh, Domitian, and then it might be um, Valerian, and then it might be Stalin, you know, like you can put, you can make the beast any number of things as it has been. I mean, Martin Luther said that was the Pope (laughs) at one point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for all intents and purposes, for him, it was because that's the point is these, these, these prophetic visions are cycles of things that they're true because they keep happening. And then the point is you get to put yourself in it and then you get to see that God is faithful and that you'll be brought through it at the end. And so to take that kind of genre of literature and then to take that that circle, that, that spiral, and to just stretch it out and say, all right, this is what it means. This is the start and the end of the end times is just, it's so, it's so dishonest and, and disingenuous. And it's, it, it, it does violence to the scriptures themselves. It also sounds a little bit, um, like, I, I don't know if you necessarily intended it this way, Zach, but like the, it, it seems like people when they're in the moment, um, especially with this, this like genre of like apocalyptic literature, being in it, um, the, those like apocalyptic tropes, like they, it feels linear because it's like mm. the cycle that you are experiencing, but you don't see it as a cycle. And, you know, obviously, like, we've kind of used the premillennial, left-behind type eschatology as that. But, like, the it, it's kind of easier to identify the genre of literature as a cycle if you're sort of <laughs> using hindsight to see that this happens again and again and again. Mm. Is that is that how you would characterize? That's a really like good insight saying? there. It doesn't feel like a cycle while you're in it. But I think that's the power of once you realize that it is. So then, you know, everything looks bleak right now in the world. It does. And it seems like the cups, the the bowls of judgment are being poured out uh, upon us all. So then to be able to keep turning through the book of Revelation to get to the part where um, death itself, hell itself is thrown into the pit of fire and destroyed. And then every knee bows and every tongue confesses and all things are made new and there's streams of living water and to be able to get to that point is uh there's some some comfort in that well it seems like in and you know i want to go back to that series for a minute if that's all right the left behind series that you know you talked about zach it being kind of a way at least i think this is what you were saying a way of it almost you know it seems to me that the way it was written was to help people relate to it, mm-hmm. right? And then see that they'll be saved at the end and those types of things. And that's a very generalization, overgeneralization, I guess. But it's interesting while reading more about the series, the efforts to turn them into films um, mm-hmm. and how they keep trying to reboot it. And they're actually in the process of doing that now, um, of redoing the series again to see if they could um, get more attention to it, I guess, and to get more people on board this particular series. Uh, and I just find that fascinating, mm. um, of what it is they seem to be trying to do. And I'm part, part of me will be curious to see how will they try to connect or will they try to connect it politically? 
right? In some way that, you know, I, so I remember in 2011 or something, I guess it was when Obama was running the second time. I think that was right. Yeah. Chuck Norris and his wife came out talking about that election and that proclaimed that if um, Obama won re-election, it would begin the thousand years of darkness. Um, <laughs> if he won. It's and so dramatic. Like, oh my yeah. gosh. That's the thing. It's like this, that is a political strategy because it works because it's got it high drama and it's like, you know, the religious affiliation of these stories they are all encompassing and it just moves people. And, ah, yes, yes. The fact just, that people think that this is the worst that humanity has ever been blows my mind. Like, have you read history? We used yes. to murder people yeah. for sport. We're not. <laughs> yeah. This is, it's not so bad. Things are not as bad as you think they are. Yeah. But it's just fascinating how they, they you know, a, a percentage of the population kind of latches on to that messaging. Um, mm-hmm. And there are powerful group of people because especially when you talk about politics you know they Mm -hmm. vote you know you get them to vote and that's how a lot of times um some of the bigger elections they win is because people know that if we can get uh the more fundamentalist you know christian um and evangelical christians out to vote that most likely they'll vote for the republican candidate and you know they go out in numbers um that can help. And so by tying in that argument that they use, obviously didn't work because Obama won a second term. Um, but I just found that so interesting that that was a perspective they were trying to use, um, as a way to encourage people to vote is if you don't vote, if you don't vote for, um, Romney, then the thousand years of darkness will begin. (laughs) Evangelicals Uh, going, if you don't vote for the Mormon, then (laughs) the thousand years of darkness, right? Which, you know, that's not a personal (laughs) knock against Mormons, but just the, those same evangelicals would not consider a Mormon a Christian normally. But they were so scared. How do you come back from that, by the way? Like once you've gone totally nuclear, that the world is going to end and Satan himself will reign if this man gets elected. Like, how do you then say something about someone else? Like, there's no higher, you, you can't go higher than that. You've already gone nuclear. So, can't get worse than the Antichrist. <laughs> right? What do we do now? <laughs> yeah. But it just seems like such an interesting way to live. And the, as I said, the fact they're trying to redo this series again, uh, and they're using uh, the actor Kevin Sorbo. Oh, of course, did Hercules, right? No, <sighs> yes, Was and it? then every low budget Christian movie since then. Yep, and so, and he is someone who the right has, um, you know, uh, latched onto, and he that's he's found his niche, and so he's going to star and direct in the new movie. I will only watch it if Lucy Lawless is in it as well, um, as Xena Warrior cool. Princess, not as anyone yes. else. <laughs> yeah. Doubtful it'll happen, but that's ah, well, cool. A man can dream. That's right. Anyway, sorry, so, I know I keep going on that tangent, but I just found no, that fascinating. I, I didn't know that, I didn't uh, realize that they were trying to like reboot the. And this is from last month. Mm. Okay, well, there you go. So I, I was. Um, you know, talking, uh, talking through this, you know, the shapes, shapes of time, and um, you know, kind of our, our plan for today's recording with my husband Chad, and he uh, uh, told me of um, a helpful kind of connection that might be familiar to to many of you, but um, uh, there is a piece. Well, first of all, there's a writer. Uh, he was an American writer, Kurt Vonnegut, who uh, recorded, I think it's kind of like a short lecture, but also published um, in several places about um, his uh, early writing, his like, I think it was his thesis on the shapes of stories. And so I, I just, I think that's um, a really interesting kind of connection here as we're talking about the shapes of time. Mm. Um, like, are we really just talking about the shapes of stories. And um, Kurt Vonnegut had this whole sort of like 
charting out of different shapes of stories. And so, you know, he's like writing and publishing. He has like a lot of novels and was thinking about like the structure of a narrative. And I think you can find, um, you know, his his lecture online. Um, I think it's like a 30 minute um, piece. But, you know, he talks through how, you know, when you're talking about like uh, any kind of genre of story, there's like this stair step ladder where you're climbing upward things are going swimmingly um you know the lovers they fall in love and they're like having a a grand time and they're you know giving each other flowers and walking holding hands through the park and and then something happens and the stair step ladder going upwards suddenly crashes into a you know a desolate trough and that trough there's this low point and then you have a low point that um, requires a creative solution and then you start moving up on the incline again and you know maybe it flattens out there's a plateau um, and then maybe there's like another an, a deeper crash a deeper trough and then the end of the story can maybe resolve uh, coming again out of the trough back up into an incline um, that just keeps going up and up and up and you have like your happy ending um, and and you know I'm uh, doing some heavy like paraphrasing of uh, <laughs> this uh, shapes of stories it's not something I had uh, seen uh, of, of his before but like the point being that you can draw on like the same way that um, in my classes I draw like this circle and horizontal line to represent time um, Kurt Vonnegut they're like a bunch of different shapes but you can put up on the board variations of these shapes too you can have the staircase that goes up and then crashes down and then rises back up again you can have something that looks more like a wave that bounces up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and just has you know twists and turns um and you can have a story that's just maybe it is a single horizontal line and it's maybe a boring story where there's just nothing happens and it's just plateau from beginning to end (laughs) um and I, you know, there are like shapes of stories that we are drawn to. And why are we drawn to those stories? Why would we prefer a story that has the, you know, peaks and valleys um, versus a story that's just a flat plateau all the way through? Is there, you know, an excitement that comes with different shapes of stories? And uh, like, why do we crave certain kinds of resolution at the end of a story? Um, and it just is like, I think, a really interesting and kind of perfect like frame that um, Vonnegut sort of uh, offered that I think really maps onto the way that we think about these like big conceptions of time out of our cultural religious lenses, and that it seems that we like we crave order we crave orderliness in the midst of you know seeming chaos um (laughs) that we want to feel like we have control we want to feel a sense of meaning and and so you know i think like one way to sort of put put these shapes of time or shapes of stories and bring them together is that that's part of what's being offered to us and you know for better or worse because these shapes are different and they mean different things to different people (laughs) But I think the motivation of latching on to certain stories is that sort of comfort that and, and like sense of belonging that we derive from particular shapes. Um, so I don't know. I'm curious what, what y'all hmm. think about that. It reminds me of the end of the Gospel of Mark, um, which, you know, Mark was written in the style of a, of a, of a Greek epic, which they don't all have perfect happy endings and the earliest manuscripts it ends with you know the the women come to the tomb they find that it's it's empty there's uh there's an angel who's like hey check it out he's not here he's gone he risen hallelujah and it ends with trembling and bewildered the women went out and fled from the tomb they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid and that's how the book ends but that only lasted like a couple hundred years because then people added on to the end of it. And so all of the later manuscripts and like the ones that are like King James was based on, the Latin Bibles, they all have this other 
uh, 11 verses. That's all like wrapping up the story, you know, like the end of the Lord of the Rings where it's like, all right, well, then he appeared to two more of them and then he appeared to everyone. And then he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then he said, I love you. I'm happy. I'll see you later. I left uh, lunch in the fridge and everything got wrapped up in the end. And it was like they could not stand for the story to not end on a high note that it had to end there or else they just felt weird about it. Uh, I love that as an example, because it's like you go from a story shape that kind of trails off at the end in this sad sort of dangling, like downward slope of trembling and fear to like the sharp upward incline of happiness and resolution. (laughs) It's very different, very different emotional responses too. the last chapter of Ecclesiastes does the same thing where it's like some some later editor was like, this is just this needs this needs a pick me up at the end. Nobody's every, people are going to finish this and just be upset. So we need like a a happy ending tacked on to the end with yeah. a bow on it, right? And then they did the same thing to uh, I Am Legend. Anybody ever see that? Mm-hmm. The book, the short story ends totally differently. It ends with this great like Twilight Zone esque reveal, and it's like dark, and it just ends. But Hollywood was like, we can't do that. We have to have a resolution. We have to have some kind of happy ending. People have to leave the theater feeling good in some way, shape, or form. Like they didn't just waste their time. When you think about with storytelling, you know, as we've already said, that having that nice ending is what people, human nature is what we want, right? We want to be able to wrap up something type deal. And so, you know, um, John, my son John and I are right now uh, watching um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe hmm. in release order. And so he came, you know, maybe a month or so ago, he was just like, hey, Dad, I really want to, my friend watched Black Widow. I want to see Black Widow. And I said, okay, that's great, but we've not seen any of the others. It's <laughs> not going to make, you're going to miss some things. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said, what, are you ready to start watching these? And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So we started and we were watching an order of release, not chronological order. Um, and so it makes me think about, you know, he and I were talking the other day and yesterday he was kind of trying to make sense of how they're all connected. We've gotten all the way through phase two. We just started, um, civil war last night. Um, Captain America civil war. Right. And, uh, it makes, he was talking about how they're all connected and stuff like that, but that, are they really like Captain America? The second one is it really a sequel and what, what that means. And, you know, part one, part two. And it made me think about, um, um, Avengers, the third and fourth one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Infinity War, the way it ends, and then you have Endgame, and and it was kind of pitched as a part one, part two aspect of things because um, part one does not end all happy go lucky as part two does. At least it ends where things are more wrapped up. Part one ends with a major cliffhanger, right? Um, and you think about films like that, like for example, the last two Harry Potter movies. The, for book seven, um, you know, there are both the Deathly Hallows, but it was part one, part two. Part one did not end on a high note as part two did. Um, and so it ended with something that you're just kind of like, well, what? And so, but you knew a part two was coming. So the story wasn't over yet mm-hmm. is my point. Right. Yeah. And we love it for the story to be over and happy, as you said. And I, and I think the two examples you gave from scripture is just fascinating. I was not quite aware that they did that with Ecclesiastes, but I didn't know that that's how Mark um, uh, changed is that here was the original version. And then they added on some things to it, which I've always found really interesting. Um, and to me that I always take that as a, what does that say about the Bible? Right. You know, and, and the, those types of things. But anyway, I, um, most people want um, to believe that things are going to work out well for them. And, when we are in a storyline, um, we put ourselves in that story. And, we, you know, we then want the characters to come out on top. You know, unless mm-hmm. you are a person who is just um, super pessimistic, you know, uh, you know, somebody like, like I don't know, Adam, who... Uh, <laughs> Picked out Pan's Labyrinth for his movie early <gasps> early yeah, last sucked. year, Adam and that sucked. movie that movie ends spoiler alert with like a dead child 
And yeah. it's like, oh, that's an awful ending. You know, or something like Requiem for a Dream that just ends with awful tragedy. <laughs> uh, some people like that. And I don't know why, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think but. it's like, I think some some of those stories can be really cathartic. Like, it's not that they're happy, but they reflect something that you experience. And I think, like, the cathartic experience of watching something that's super, super sad, I think what that gives people, to some extent, is a feeling that you're not alone in experiencing, like, deep sadness or trauma, and that there's, like, a path I mean, I guess if the story ends in, you know, death, I'm not sure that that maybe is a different message. But some of the stories that are really sad, there's still kind of a way forward <laughs> through healing. And the healing is really hard and not, you know, it's not like a simple, straightforward, like wrapped up in a bow type of process. And it's just I think there's something um, that's comforting in seeing that being reflected in all its like ugliness and um, darkness that it kind mm. of counterintuitively facilitates a, a kind of healing or a feeling of being seen. Um, but that's a very different kind of story, like I think, than, you know, what, what we've been talking about with the sort of nice resolution that is happy. But it's, yeah, it's a different shape um, with a different kind of purpose, I think. And then there's also the kind of, um, you know, like storytelling problem where people don't want the story to end. And so the story just like drags on and on and on. Mm. Like if you think of like a, a TV show that is like 10 seasons too long. And it's like, why didn't you just have a plan to do this well in three seasons? Are you talking about anything in particular? Crazy anatomy. On and on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> we gave that up um, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like why, what's the kind of motivation of that shape? And I think it's it's like related to the desire to want things to work out well in the end. Mm. But I think people also want to keep experiencing that that like happy moment or resolution and to like feel part of a story for as long as possible when you know really like all stories they do come to an end or they at least change mm. over time and so there's like i think i think we all kind of have a an impulse or like motivation to find like permanence in like goodness or permanence in like stability mm-hmm. and um that can like influence the way that we tell stories um and, and sort of drag them on in hopes that we can be part of them for for longer Hmm. well and so if i can uh we talk about you know the feeling of of happiness and just feeling good you know john and i in this journey of watching all these films together and we're having a great time doing it you know i mean he's really getting into it and we're having a lot of fun um but I remember sometimes he would talk to me about what was your favorite one and, you know, your least favorite and blah, blah, blah. And I had told him that, you know, we're not done with Civil War yet. We're, we're going to finish it today. Um, but that when I saw that film, I, I didn't want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, even though, you know, the way it ends, it's okay. It was still a, you, you know, for two, for what over 12 films or something like that so far up to that point it's like all the heroes maybe they they don't get along at times but they're still kind of on the same side and then all of a sudden you see in this one that wait a minute two of the biggest characters are now on opposite sides fighting each other and i struggled with that i gotta be honest watching that that was tough Mm -hmm. um to watch because it it made me sad and like oh this is something i'm supposed to be able to just escape into and not worry and blah, blah blah and all of a sudden this happens and um and so that was tough. And so I like how they worked with it later. Um, but that is interesting to me how, you know, so watching it, some of it last night, I'm glad we're doing it. But even he was describing this morning, I said, so what do you think so far? And he's like, I like it, but I mean, it's, it's really good. And the plot's interesting, but I also don't like it because, and we've not gotten to the big fight yet. Um, 
we stopped right before that. And um, well, we had to because bedtime. Because um, so I knew if we Spider-Man got into the yet. fight, we had we'd have to watch the rest of the film, right? And so, um, so I said, we'll finish it today. Uh, but he just was like, but I, I don't like the fact that they're they're starting to not really get along. Um, cause he, you know, we both love Iron Man and Captain America, right? And we just, but all these characters, you get attached to all of them. And so it's just interesting what that, how this all relates. Hmm. So, yeah. Superhero movies in general kind of have the same shape as the new Testament where which it's is. like, <laughs> yeah. well, which is like, paint us a shape, Zach. I will. Yeah. I will paint you a picture auditorially. Yes, please. <laughs> So it begins, they all begin with humble origins, um, an underdog story of somebody with great promise and potential who needs to go through uh, a hero's journey in order to find their full potential. They discover their powers. They go up against the powers that be. There's some some small successes. There's some uh, small losses. And then... Um, there's the final, there's the big confrontation in which they lose. They always have to lose, at least somewhat. They need to be beaten into the ground, you know, oh no, Iron Man is falling out of the sky because he's all frozen and, you know, Captain America's shield is broken. Like, you need to be broken in some way. But then, when all hope seems lost, look on the horizon and there's... You know, I know that's Gandalf coming over Helm's Deep, but that was really good too, though. Same kind of deal, right? <laughs> then there's this dramatic resurrection, and then boom, there we are. There's the happy ending that death is no more. Oh, you, oh death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You know, that, yeah, we have this final win. And then, then the same cycle repeats again with the early church in the book of Acts. And then we get through these letters. And then the book of Revelation does the exact same story arc of like this humble beginnings and then these troughs. And then at the end, there's this great victory. And it always ends on a happy note. And all of the stories in the New Testament follow that same underdog hero's journey um, sort of story arc. Ah, shapes. Which is maybe why I, uh, maybe why I like superhero movies. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It all comes together. (laughs) Well, it makes me think about The Matrix as well, right? We're recording this um, less than a week before the fourth Matrix film comes out, Mm -hmm. Matrix Resurrections. Um, And I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, I'm actually excited about it. I really liked the series. There were, I had issues with the second and third movie. Um, but I still liked the storyline and the, the, you know, what it stood for and stuff I thought was very interesting, hmm. but it that's kind of like a superhero movie or series as you just described. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also even like the, um, with star Wars and the three separate trilogies. Yeah. Right. They all kind of follow that same, same, um, description that you just gave us about superhero movies. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting how they how they bring all that together in this fourth movie of the Matrix series. I don't know. Speaking of shapes and superheroes and the Bible, Zach, do you uh, want to tell us about a dead Christian story hour? How's that for a transition? To- uh- <laughs> <laughs> That is a wonderful transition because <laughs> I still don't have a theme song. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's, let's try to let's try to workshop that. Okay. Dead Christian Story Hour. It, do you want something spooky um, or like uplifting or like Halloween theme music type of um, you know intro? I don't know. I want something that's gonna I, make me believe. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm kind of into the uh, the sort of ironic um, uh, theme music. Something chipper and cheery, like a yeah. like a uh, like a mattress company jingle. Oh right? yes, that's perfect. And you got eight hundred five eighty two three hundred empire. <laughs> that kind of. Right. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> love that. <laughs> well, welcome 
to part two of the Dead Christian Story Hour, a part at the end of every fifth episode in which I share with you one of my favorite stories from Christian hagiography. What is hagiography, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. These are stories of dead Christians, and they are most of the time totally over the top. And I want you to take all of these with a giant grain of salt because they are not historically accurate and they aren't meant to be. They are stories of heroes. And so that's what they're just meant to be. So just let them be hero stories, okay? And stop thinking too much about it because it's great and I love them. This one comes from St. Lawrence. And St. Lawrence is uh, the name of the borough where I live which is named not at all after the actual St. Lawrence, but after a brand of stockings that the local knitting mill made in the 40s. But St. Lawrence, ah, capitalism, right? It's too bad because it's a great story. And I actually, this is the only dead Christian um, that whose icon I own. I have, I have St. Lawrence in my kitchen. He holds my, um, my coffee scoops. And I'll tell you why in just a second, because it's great. So I'm going to take you all the way back to the mid-250s. So this is like 200 years after Jesus. And Christianity is still kind of an underground sort of deal. Um, but Christians in Rome were starting to get eh, maybe a little bit too powerful, a little bit too influential. Uh you know, the whole thing was just kind of like, bleh, to Emperor Valerian. He wasn't really having a whole lot of these Christians. Um, so he issued an edict that all Christians in Rome must offer a sacrifice to Roman gods or else lose their titles and land and standing. And anyone who persisted should be put to death. This was something that Roman emperors did from time to time because they knew that Christians weren't going to do it because Christians were stubborn and they were... <laughs> In those days, kind of countercultural pacifistic anarchists who loved to give the middle finger to the government. Uh, if you can imagine such a thing, that's what the church was like back then. And uh, they were not, under any circumstance, going to acknowledge a Roman God as any kind of God because they were like, it's Jesus or, or nothing. Sorry, I'll die before I, I'll do that. And so the Romans were like, great, then we'll kill you. So in uh, 258, the Emperor Valerian issued an edict that all of the bishops, priests, and deacons of the Roman church should immediately be put to death and all of their treasures confiscated because obviously they would not make those sacrifices to Jupiter and such. So they started hunting down all the church leaders. And after they killed the Pope and some of the most prominent leaders, the prefect of Rome went after the archdeacon of the church and demanded that he turn over all the treasures of the church. Now, deacons, for those of you who are not super into churchy stuff, are uh, the class of, of officers within the church who are tasked with feeding and taking care of the poor and the widows, the orphans, the lepers, anyone who, is, who has no social safety net in society. Uh, the deacons were the ones who went out and found these people and took care of them and helped them. So indirectly, they're also the people in charge of whatever finances the church has, which at those times was not a whole lot, but um, that was their job. And this fellow named Lawrence was the first deacon appointed of this church, and he was kind of in charge. So the Roman prefect went to him, and they were like, hey, Lawrence, so I got to kill you. And I, I, I'm sorry about that, but I got to do it. However, if you turn over all of the treasures of the church to me right now, I might give you a head start so you can get out of Dodge, right? Because the prefect wants to take a cut before he gives the rest to the emperor, so he's, you know, he's trying to make it a little sweet for himself. So, so Lawrence is like, all right, sure, I'm in. Give me three days. And at this point, I'm sure the prefect is like, wait a second. What? These Christians, they're, they're jackasses. So what, why, is, why is this guy on board? But whatever. I'm not going to think too hard about it. Um, I'm going to get some cash money. So three days later, Lawrence shows up at, in front of the prefect's office and trailing him is a crowd of the dirtiest people, the widows, the orphans, the lepers, the poor, the, the crippled, the sick, following behind him in this crowd. And he says to the prefect, behold, 
the treasures of the church. Yeah. Because he had taken those three days and had liquidated all of the church's assets and had then just redistributed them (laughs) to the poor in Rome. So the church had no money after that. And he said, we are far more wealthy than your emperor will ever be. So as you can probably guess, the prefect was not a fan. And so instead of beheading him, as they did with the Pope and everyone else, he's like, I'm going to make this guy suffer. So he strapped him to a gridiron and put him over a bed of hot coals to slowly cook him to death. And after a while of excruciating pain, he said to Lawrence, what do you have to say for yourself now? And Lawrence looked at him and he said, I'm done on this side. Turn me over. (laughs) (sighs) And for that, they made him the patron saint of cooks. And so the icon I have of him in my kitchen is of him happily standing there with this big smile on his face, holding a big gridiron with like a bunch of garlic and onions in his other hand, as if he was like the church chef because he's the patron saint of cooks. And somebody told the icon maker, go ahead and make me a picture of St. Lawrence, the patron saint of cooks. And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll give him a bunch of food and stuff because apparently he was a chef. He was not a chef. He was cooked alive on a gridiron. He is also the patron saint of comedians, which feels a lot more appropriate because dude was a smart ass and uh, I love that I kind Amazing. of love him the patron <laughs> saint of chefs even though he was cooked alive yeah the patron saint of dentists also got her teeth kicked out so the people who come up with these things have a sort of sense of cruel irony I think yeah, yeah. very much so I would say so yeah I love that is there uh-huh. a, like a closing like uh, outgoing theme music that that we'll have for for this bit too, because I feel like it really needs that. Oh well, maybe someday. Nothing about um, magical breasts this time, though. Ooh, no magical breasts this time. Just a smart alecky um, mm. deacon who got cooked alive and then um, later turned into the patron saint of yummy garlic and onions. Yeah, that was yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the next time you're having a barbecue, pour one out for St. Lawrence and uh, maybe give the middle finger to the government. That's what he would love. To St. Lawrence for being cooked alive. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) 